Welcome to We've Got Issues. I'm Joshua Holland. This week, we're going to talk to Anya Van Wagtendonk, Grid's misinformation reporter, about a new freakout consuming the far right, one you may not have heard of. I didn't. I hadn't heard about this one. And I, um, I usually pay pretty close attention to this stuff, but uh, it was new to me, so I figured I'd share it with you. Uh, then we're going to speak with John Storr, who edits and writes uh, daily for the editorial board about uh, this latest January 6th hearing and some other things, some gripes I have with the mainstream press coverage, um, as, as, uh, as I typically do. We've got a lot to cover, so I'll get to it in a second. But first, I just wanted to mention a really serious media failure this week and what it says about how the press is going to operate in a post-Roe v. Wade world. I am sure you've heard of the story of a 10-year-old rape victim having to travel from Ohio to Indiana to get an abortion after Ohio's trigger ban went into effect. Uh, Ohio's um, banned abortions after six weeks, uh, and they're, they're considering another law that would, I think, ban it entirely. Um, Anyway, this was this story was reported by the Indianapolis Star, and it cited a named source, a doctor who performed the abortion. Uh, that's an important point because our media often will um, base stories on unnamed sources. Then we have to take their word for those sources' credibility. Here we had a doctor saying, "I had this patient. Here's what happened to her." Uh, doctor was named in the, in the piece. Again, by a credible publication. Now, the right does not want to deal with the reality of the world their policies create. They don't want to acknowledge that rape victims, including children, uh, have to travel out of state to get health care or have to carry their rapist's child to term because of state policy, because of right-wing policy. So what they did is they very often do is they question the veracity of the report. And I shouldn't, that's, making it sound better than it is. That's not true that they questioned the veracity of the report. They claimed without any evidence whatsoever that the report was just made up, right? Because deflection is what they do. And I'm going to take an aside, just to take a moment for an aside. They used to talk about liberal bias. There are no conservatives who believe that the mainstream press has a liberal bias. They have abandoned that idea because a bias is um, something that operates on a subconscious level. And what the right now believes is that um, mainstream reporters make up stories out of whole cloth to hurt Republicans. That's not bias, right? That's not bias. Um, anyway, the real problem was what then followed, right? Because you have a bunch of like right-wing crackpots saying, oh, this story must be fake because we don't want to hear it, so it must be fake. And then what happened was a bunch of more credible outlets ran with that narrative, right? Including the Washington Post fact checker, Glenn Kessler, who has been defending himself on Twitter ever since in a very obnoxious way. No apology from him uh, since the story was, was confirmed. An arrest, an arrest in the rape was, was made um, in the rape case. Uh, the Wall Street Journal's editorial board, they ran a piece. It was called Too Good to, to Fact Check or something like that. Again, the an arrest was then made. The story was confirmed. Um, did they apologize? Of course not. They just doubled down. Meanwhile, the attorney general of Indiana is vowing to investigate the doctor. And Fox News identified her by name, uh, put up her picture on Tucker Carlson's show, might as well have painted a target on her back. There is a 100% chance that she's going to have to 
uh, change her life. She's going to be hounded by death threats and uh, threats of violence. There, there's a hundred percent chance of that. There's no way that that's not the case. And they know that and they don't give a shit because they are fascists. And this is the physician who gave this poor child care, right? They're going to, they're targeting her because they don't want to hear about it. And the thing that is so maddening about this whole story is that, you know, what do you expect to happen if you make it illegal to get an abortion? And there's no exception for victims of rape and incest. Like, what do you expect to happen? Well, victims of rape and incest are going to either be forced to leave the state for an abortion or be forced to carry an unwanted pregnancy that resulted from an act of violence to term, right? That's the result of the policy. And even if this stories were apocryphal, which it definitely was not, again, it had a, a, a named source, why would anyone express surprise or skepticism that a law is having its intended effect? Right? That's what these bans do. And I, I should note here that I do not, I, I think it's a mistake that we like focus on victims of rape or incest because this is health care that anybody should have access to right although i understand that you know there are certain abortions that are um you know that the right does not want you to ever talk about because they want it they want to have it they want to have their own um idealized version of reality out there so, I mean, I think we can expect a lot more of this. These abortion bans are cruel. They will kill women. Women will bleed out because they can't get care for an ectopic pregnancy. Women will die by suicide. These are the real world effects of these policies. It's what these bans are supposed to accomplish, right? But these are these are these of these real world effects are not anything that the sponsors of those bans want to talk about. And here comes the the press to, as they habitually do, give us both sides of an issue. Both sides. And on that note, let's take a quick break and then come right back. Um, stay tuned. And we are back. I'm still Joshua Holland. I'm joined now by Anya Van Wagtendonk. Sorry, okay. Anya. I'm trying my best here. I, I love I love your name, by the way. Um, <laughs> Anya is, is Grid's misinformation reporter. Anya, welcome back to We've Got Issues. Thanks so much. Thanks for taking the time. Uh, every outlet needs a misinformation reporter these days. That hasn't always been the case, but we are 
swimming in nonsense and intrepid reporters like Anya need to help us stay on top of it all. So you have a piece up at grid.news about Fox News host Tucker Carlson and other uh, right-wing propagandists taking up the cause of Dutch farmers, which seems pretty obscure from where I'm sitting, but it's not the first time that they've glommed onto something like this. Uh, Anya, what is going on with the Dutch farmers and why is it of interest to uh, hacks like Tucker Carlson? So for the last couple of weeks, there have been regular protests in the Netherlands, um, farmers, farm workers, and people who are sort of allied with their cause in response to um, fairly new regulations, recently approved regulations out of the government um, to curb nitrogen emissions. I should say um, the nitrogen crisis in the EU has been kind of named by the EU for decades, but it is only in very recent years um, that they have started kind of um, taking it seriously on a policy level. And so in the last couple of weeks, um, the government approved a, an official proposal to curb nitrogen emissions, which in the Netherlands, um, I think not a lot of people know, it is the second largest agricultural exporter after the United States in the world. Um, it's obviously much smaller than the United States. And so the nitrogen emissions primarily, um, but not exclusively, come from livestock farms. And so this proposal, um, it could lead to the closure of something like 30% of livestock farms. Obviously, that has a, um, a significant, not just sort of economic impact on farmers who will be compensated by the government, um, but also just sort of an emotional impact as well. If you are a lifelong family farmer, for example, um, obviously that really significantly impacts your life. Um, and so that is kind of the basis of these protests. Um, but the the kind of response that has gone far beyond the Netherlands and is now kind of, you know, in American right-wing media as well, um, has much less to do with kind of the specifics of a policy proposal out of the Dutch government and more to do with these kind of broader um, right-wing, anti-EU, anti-climate change, um, and then also um, in some circles, kind of conspiratorial uh, feelings about how um, this particular policy was rolled out. Now, you write in the piece, and I, I think we should establish this before we look at how how it's kind of gone off the rails. You write in the piece that there is some um, legitimacy to the farmers' grievances and that the Dutch government has not handled this issue well. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the reality of it before we, we get into um, kind of the over-the-top reactions? Yeah, so there are a couple of different ways that I think that the government rollout of this policy um, really did not do the government any favors. Um, so like I say, this is a, a, a crisis, a climate-related crisis uh, that people have known about for decades, um, but it hasn't really been addressed in concrete ways. And so the fact that um, this policy was kind of introduced and then approved in a fairly short window of time, um, it made it feel kind of um, abrupt that this was being introduced um, as well, you know, farmers in the Netherlands, much like in the United States, much like elsewhere, um, if you are a small scale farmer, it is not an easy life anyways. Um, profit margins right. are really thin. It's an incredibly kind of um, increasingly monopolized industry. The Netherlands, like in the United States, has um, increasingly, you know, farms getting sort of like bought out by these large farm monopolies. And so small scale farmers already are not they receive the, the a very small minority of 
farm-related profits in the country. So they're just very, very squeezed in general. And so I think every time there's a new climate-related policy or regulation, um, it is felt by farmers sort of disproportionately. Um, And then I guess the final thing that I would say um, is that the government released a map, um, not to get too in the weeds of this particular means of addressing nitrogen emissions, but one of the one of the ways that they are um, choosing where to focus their um, attention, the government, um, has to do with proximity to certain protected nature reserves. And so this map came out that showed where um, which farms were in proximity to these nature reserves. Again, it's a little bit wheezy, but essentially this map made it look like um, 95% of farms by those nature preserves were going to get taken over. And so if you have no context for that map and you look and you find your particular farm, your particular address on that map, it looks like the government is just going to come in and kind of take your farm. Um, And so it really, I think the government did itself no favors in how they rolled this out. Um, And it really just kind of sparked a lot of, again, understandable fear and concern um, because there was no kind of communication about how these farmers would be compensated, what kinds of mediation there would be for them if they needed to transition to a different type of farming or a different you know, career entirely. Right. So you have this legitimate set of grievances among these farmers. And as you write in the piece, they've been blockading roads and um, spraying manure in government buildings, uh, a lot of dramatic stuff. And you write, and I quote, the movement has also drawn support from nativist and nationalist right-wing actors around the world who claim the measure is part of a globalist plot against ordinary people and traditional ways of life. Um, And, you know, we've seen this, like, this seems like the latest in a series of somewhat, uh, not identical, but similar movements that have been glommed onto and promoted by right-wing media outlets in the U.S. and elsewhere. Uh, You mentioned in the piece the Canadian Freedom Convoy and its um, comically inept American counterpart, Um, the French Yellow Vest protests. I would also add like the Bundy Ranch standoffs, the Malheur um, standoff in Oregon, similar prairie uprising events. There seems to be a common theme here. not only are these like disproportionately white people's movements, obviously, but beyond that, they seem to harken back to an, a kind of idealized earlier era, right? The truckers protest here in the U.S. has been rebranded the 1776 Restoration Movement. Um, and, and you write of the Dutch farmer story. And again, I quote, the far right leverages myths of pastoral Europe to argue that this is an attack on traditional Dutch ways of life. Um what is the connection between this and the so-called great replacement theory that has gained traction on the right, including in the, in so-called mainstream Republican circles that um, uh, Democrats and others are intentionally shifting American demographics to gain a political advantage. So populism, right-wing populism has been ascendant in the Netherlands and in the EU um, for quite some time. And this has really become a way um, to tie some of the threads, some of the narrative threads um, from those movements to kind of the the protests of the day. 
And so one of the conspiracy theories um, is that the government is actually appropriating this farmland in order to house refugees and migrants, asylum seekers. Um, and that has to do, you know, obviously significantly with the Great Replacement Theory, which essentially states that white people are being replaced by non-white um, immigrants or non-white people. Um, there's no factual basis to that in this case um, or in you know, any of the other kind of, in any case, yeah. right. When we feel like <laughs> yeah. the Buffalo shooter. Um, but just to be very clear, you know, that's not what's happening in the Netherlands. Um, but it ties into these broader concerns um, that populist politicians and other right-wing media figures and public figures have been able to really kind of tap into. Um, so again, you have farmers who are um, concerned about losing their livelihood or just sort of feeling squeezed by policymakers that they don't know, that they don't interact with. Um, I will note, you know, another similarity with the Canada convoy is we don't actually really know um, who these protesters are. Many of them, as far as the journalists on the ground that I've spoken to, um, they might be from these farming communities, they might be farm hands, farm workers, but of course, if you are a farmer, you don't have a lot of time to go out and drive your tractor around blocking traffic. You have a farm to operate. Um, and so there is a way that sort of the image of um, the humble farmer can be used to, um, to, to play up these kind of populist narratives um, in a way that doesn't actually kind of represent what farming looks like um, and, and what farmers actually kind of do on a daily basis. And we saw that also with the Canada convoy and the fact that um, not everybody participating in those truckers uh, protests were truckers themselves. Yeah. There was a, there was a lot of pickup trucks in those trucker <laughs> convoys. Right. Um, it, there's another thread that I, that I think is kind of consistent uh, with these, these kinds of uh, populist narratives which is that environmental protection or uh, public health efforts in response to a pandemic are, are merely 100% excuses to secure power to some sort of shadowy um, cabal working behind the scenes. And it reminds me, like 30 years ago, the UN published a completely non-binding set of recommendations for sustainable development. It was called Agenda 21 had no real world impact whatsoever. It was literally just um, recommendations. And this has become the source of all sorts of uh, anti-government conspiracy bullshit ever since. You still see it popping up on far right websites now and again, Agenda 21. You'll see it like in when crackpots go and testify at like town hall meetings, sometimes they'll bring it up and, and they'll be like, oh, they're trying to ban our golf courses or whatever. Um, I don't know what my question is here. Do you, do you think it's hyperbolic to suggest that this shadowy group of environmentalists or public health people secretly pulling the strings from behind the curtain are just kind of like a new incarnation of like the Jews of an earlier era of propaganda or like Jewish bankers? Is that is that fair or is that over the top? I think anytime you hear phrases like, Shady, sh uh, 
shadowy globalist elites. Um, <laughs> globalist, man. Yeah, that's pretty much. You know, you, you can't separate that from these <laughs> centuries-old anti-Semitic that, myths. Um, and certainly yeah. there, that myth, again, in the kind of conspiratorial circles looking at this, um, which are largely fringe, but are also getting um, repeated on more mainstream um, media programs, including recently on the Tucker Carlson program, um, this idea that sort of a, a network is attempting to starve the population into uh, submission. Um, that's one of the arguments about what's going on in the Netherlands. Again, that does not reflect kind of how global supply chains and how the particular Dutch agricultural industry works. Um, I won't get into the weeds there either, but you know, neither will these conspiracists because it kind of like fits into um, this narrative that average ordinary people are under attack by these broader forces and that things like the climate crisis um, are just sort of a smokescreen to, you know, to gain power. Um, you can pretend like there's a climate crisis. You can impose these kind of bogus nitrogen emission regulations and in so doing, you know, starve a, a populace into submission. And so that's kind of the, the, version of the conspiracy that's coming out right now but i think you know it as you point out like it's a it's quite an old um an old populist song yeah i mean it's it's not a coincidence that they focus so much on george soros um and all of this is coming in at a, at a bad time for society it's all being amped up in part uh, as a result of a global pandemic and the sense of isolation that that caused so many people to experience then you have cynical actors like Tucker Carlson and his lot who know this is this is nonsense, right? I mean, Tucker Carlson's a well-educated dude, uh, urban guy. Um, but they promote it for partisan or ideological purposes, and they don't care who gets hurt in the process. It's a, it's a really disturbing trend that we're seeing uh, over and over again. It's right populism. And remember, like, the difference between right populism and left populism. Right populism... Left populism posits that you're being crushed by elites at the top. Right populism says that you're being squeezed between predatory poor people, immigrants, people of color, etc. below you and those same elites at the top. You're being squeezed in the middle. Anya, I believe we are about out of time. I really want to thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. Thanks so much for having me. Folks, Anya's piece is titled Why Tucker Carlson and the Global Right Wing Have Taken Up the Cause of Dutch Farmers. You can check it out at grid.news. We're going to take a quick break and then come right back with John Storr. Stay tuned. Say a word for Jimmy Brown He ain't got nothing at all Not the shirt right off his back Say a word for Ginger Brown Walks with his head down to the ground Took the shoes right off his feet 
Welcome back. I'm joined now by John Storr. John has become kind of a progressive media mogul, having assembled a crew of contributors over at the editorial board, which you can check out at editorialboard.com. John, welcome back to We've Got Issues. Thanks for having me. Thanks for taking the time. You're like a little Rupert Murdoch of the left. (laughs) (laughs) Good job. I mean, you started out with just a sub stack and uh, you've really made something out of it. Yeah, thank you. It's been a lot of work, but a lot of fun, too. Yeah, yeah, well, at least a lot of work. I don't know if it's a lot of fun. <laughs> you got to say that, right? Yeah, well, it is fun. I mean, I do. I, 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 mean, I write every day. You got to you got to have fun if you write every day. <laughs> yeah, I stopped writing over a year ago because I was not having fun anymore. Um, anyway, I want to discuss a few different topics today. I definitely want to complain about shitty political reporting, as is my want, because we're. Yeah. We're just swimming in some terrible reporting right now, and it's really yeah. hurting it's hurting the administration. It's hurting the country, potentially. Um, but first, I want to get your take on this latest January 6th committee hearing. It was a little bit altered, according to reports, to fit testimony from um, former White House counsel Pat Cipollone um, into the two-hour hearing. Basically, they'd been trying to get Cipollone to testify for months and months and months. He had, you know, the he was a corroborating witness for a lot of the previous testimony, um, and they they really wanted to work him into this hearing. But they had originally planned to focus more time on the links between Trump and Trump's inner circle Mm -hmm. and uh, violent right wing thugs like the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers. But, John, Mm -hmm. you kind of honed in on a different angle arguing that what you term a congressional coup maybe mm. hasn't gotten as much attention as some other revelations from these hearings. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I hadn't, I hadn't really thought of this idea until Stephanie, uh, Congresswoman Stephanie Murphy um, spent a little time talking about who had joined a White House meeting on December 21st, 2020. And what they talked about and why what they talked about was important. So what they talked, so this was a meeting with Trump, uh, 10 Republican congressmen, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who had just been elected, Rudy Giuliani, Mark Meadows, and somebody else I'm forgetting. Uh, Oh, uh, no. uh, Michael Flynn was there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. and they did basically try to pressure Pence into going along with the coup plan. Uh, Political reported um, what Matt Gates said to Steve Bannon some time ago, uh, that basically they presented him with affidavits and evidence and arguments and so on, but Pence wasn't buying it. Well, those affidavits and arguments and so on were not, <laughs> did not substantiate anything that they were claiming it did. Uh, right. Pretty much the same kind of thing everyone else around Trump was saying. There's no evidence. There's no evidence, et cetera. So Pence walks away, and there's and he, they don't want anything to do with it. Well, um, Stephanie Murphy goes on to say that um, what they talked about is really important because, and this, these are her words, Republicans in the House and the Senate were looking for reasons to object so uh, let me go back a step. So the, what they talked about was the 
John Eastman theory. The John Eastman theory, in, in his, I'll say it as brief as I can, is basically getting Pence to say the election is invalid, send it back to the states, uh, the states that Biden won, get the legislators in those states to overrule the popular vote in those states, thus electing Donald Trump. That's important. So, mm-hmm. go ahead. Um, that's important because then it goes to like, well, goes back to the Congress. Like, they wanted, to, they were looking for reasons to object. So, Ste- I thought Stephanie Miller, sorry, Stephanie uh, Murphy did a great job at hinting at it really hard. Like, something is coming up that's going to suggest that the Eastman theory that originally applied to the states might also have applied to the United States Senate. Remember, the Senate had a majority at the time. And if you could get all those senators, those Republican senators, to object to Biden's victory, I don't know. I don't know what would have happened. I don't. Nobody knows because we've never been in a situation like that. But in effect, the Senate would overrule the election, and and then there would be a process after that. So I, this is what I why I called it a congressional coup. I mean, what the the plan was to basically muddy the waters, declare that it was there was, um, you know, widespread problems with those states that Biden had won, then send it back to friendly state legislators Mm -hmm. to basically steal the election from the voters. Um, And so this is on December 21st. And I should make this point. um, There was the Fox News editor who called um, Arizona early on. This is really significant. The guy's name was Chris Steyerwalt. He was fired, um, or I guess he said he was pushed out. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Fox News official said that it wasn't because of this, but it clearly was a result <clears throat> of the anger in Trump world. Um, that screwed up their plan to a degree of declaring victory prematurely and, and just mm-hmm. steamrolling over the whole thing. It put mm-hmm. a real wrench in it. That's why they were so furious at Fox for making that call. Um, so this meeting that you're talking about was December 21st. Remember that this is now three days after the December 18th meeting mm-hmm. in the Oval Office that has been called unhinged, right? Mm-hmm. Where Rudy Giuliani and um, uh, what's her name? The crazy lady. Uh, Sydney Powell. Sydney Powell and um, others. I think Michael Flynn was in that meeting as well. We're mm-hmm. literally almost coming to blows with members of Trump's uh, legal team, of the White House legal team. Mm-hmm. So this is all in this short period of time, these three days. Um, and I would also, and you know, we're going to take a listen to this little clip because I think this was so damning. Let's let's take a little listen to this. This was um, from the previous hearing. This is um, so the June 23rd hearing. Um, This is former Deputy Attorney General Richard Donahue responding to questions about um, a subsequent hearing in the White House. This is the one where they tried to get um, Jeffrey Clark, where Trump wanted to appoint Jeffrey Clark to be the acting attorney general. And then basically all of the DOJ leadership said, if you do that, we're all going to We're all going to quit at once. Everybody is. Uh, Let's just listen to this. So um, this only takes a second. Were any of the allegations he brought up found credible? Did you find any of them credible? No. 
Mr. Rosen said to Mr. Trump, quote, DOJ can't and won't snap its fingers and change the outcome of the election. How, how did the president respond to that, sir? He responded very quickly and said, essentially, uh, that's not what I'm asking you to do. What I'm just asking you to do is just say it was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican Congress. So Trump, according to Donahue, said, and I quote, just say it was corrupt and leave the rest up to me and Republican congressmen. So he was clearly thinking that he had these members of Congress on his side. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it was a pretty this is a sprawling coup attempt. Um, We've learned since that several of those members of Congress then asked the Trump White House for presidential pardons. So if you look at all of that, it's it's really damning. Mm hmm. It's really yeah, I, I don't. It, that's I see in the piece, you know, that the committee doesn't come outright and sit and accuse Trump of seditious conspiracy. But boy, if you put it all together, it sure does look like seditious. It's conspiracy. a good case for a seditious conspiracy. You know, we had uh, Marcy Wheeler on the show a while back, and I asked her. You know, there's a lot of people who are upset that the committee seems hesitant to make a criminal referral to the DOJ, and she, her response was, "This is all a criminal referral to the DOJ." Hmm. Like you don't need to put it on a letterhead and say we are hereby referring this to the DOJ. That's just advisory anyway. Has no binding, you know, uh, action on the on the DOJ. They don't have to follow a criminal referral from Congress. Mm-hmm. But by laying it out in this in this very um, easy to follow kind of roadmap, they are in fact submitting a criminal referral. Um, And there's been this roiling debate uh, among judicial watchers about whether the DOJ is actually building a case from the ground up and will ultimately charge people at very high levels or whether they are uh, cowed by the potential political ramifications and and potentially, uh, I think, a wave of of right wing violence. I think they're afraid of setting off um, a real wave of MAGA terrorism like we have not seen. And Mm -hmm. uh, they don't want to go after Trump for that reason. Uh, do you have a position on that debate? And if so, did these hearings have any impact on your view? Well, I, th- I think that's the, you know, you know, if you just, if you look, if you read the newspaper or watch the news shows, the you get the impression that um, Democrats, the, the committee doesn't want to press too hard and the Department of Justice doesn't want to press too hard because we are an exceptional country. You know, we play by a different set of rules. Um, we don't prosecute former political leaders and so on. It's, it's just this very noble sounding reason for inaction, right? But yeah. I wrote a piece a while back that's it's really like, that's just cover for fear. Um, yeah. the, real, the, real, the real problem is right-wing violence. Um, and if we set it as such, uh, then we could Instead of instead of saying to the DOJ, you know, figure out if you're going to be uh, prosecuting a political leader, you could say to them, "Why don't you just start prosecuting violent criminals?" <laughs> you know, I, I mean, the, obviously the cost. I mean, we could be talking about you know, dozens of uh, Oklahoma City bombings. You know, that it could yes. be could be like that. Um, and that is that is worth fearing, and nobody should take it lightly. I think when, on our side, when dem- when liberals or progressives start making allegations about Merrick Garland, they are insufficiently uh, appreciating 
the danger that we're that we're facing. I mean, you, I, I just I think a lot of I think a lot of respectable white people and white liberals are generally so insulated from the consequences of politics that they just cannot fathom um, the kind of violence that could take place. I don't know why that's the case since we have mass shootings all the time, um, but it, there's not been a linkage, I guess, between mass shootings and political violence. I, I don't, I, I just don't know why there isn't that linkage, but if there were, maybe, maybe people would understand what's at stake here. So uh, my problem with that discourse is that, you know, there, it seems that there is a one-sided focus on the potential consequences, and I don't take them lightly, mm -hmm. of prosecuting a former president, uh, somebody who has a cultish following, a very a, a cultish following with a propensity towards violence. And we're not, and the, the question is not, frequently enough asked what is the consequences of failing to prosecute that mm -hmm. person what is what are the consequences of impunity and I, I mean i believe that the history is pretty clear that impunity invites more lawlessness mm -hmm. uh, i think the history of coups is very suggestive that if you don't go after the perpetrators of failed coups um you are putting your your democ democracy at, at grave grave risk so for me, it's like we're always like, oh, what what are the potential consequences for um, prosecuting rather than what are the potential consequences for letting politics um, prevent a prosecution? I should also note, just while we're talking about this, that Jeff Clark, one of the masterminds of the coup attempt, was raided in the early morning hours before that hearing that we just mm -hmm. heard. Uh, John Eastman, the fascist legal scholar who came up with what a judge called a felony in search of a legal theory, or I guess he came up with a legal theory um, mm -hmm. behind the felony, had his devices seized by federal agents at around the same time. So there, there is reason to believe, and um, you know, certainly if you follow Marcy Wheeler on Twitter, she gets pretty pissed off when people suggest that they're not doing anything. Yeah. So, I mean, are. there is evidence that there's, you know, some, something cooking up. I also have this, this idea of, you know, that for me, obviously there's a certain satisfaction of, you know, seeing, seeing Donald Trump, you know, pay consequences, face, face uh, some sort of accountability. But if we're talking about the goal of deterring another coup attempt, well, you could probably accomplish that by prosecuting a whole bunch of people who are up in that inner, inner circle without going after Trump himself. Yeah, that, that's what I was thinking, too. The, there's a lot of ways to make the point without making the point, I guess you could say. Um, I mean, and I think. I think the DOJ is invested in, in everyone believing in an American exceptionalism. The DOG, DOJ is invested in the idea that everyone is treated equal under the law. And they do not want to be responsible. It, as an institution, does not want to be responsible for, for Americans losing faith in that idea. So even if Trump is, you know, let go, I, I think, I think, uh, Garland and his other senior officials will move heaven and earth to sweep up everybody underneath Trump as much as they can anyway. Well, I hope you're right about that. I, I don't, I don't know. I'm, you know, like a lot of people, I'm certainly losing 
confidence in this Department of Justice. And, you know, you have these kind of dueling narratives coming because Adam Schiff has come out and said, oh, look, this is alarming, their lack of urgency in terms of prosecuting. Uh, Andrew Weissman, who is in the, one of the, the Mueller um, special counsel prosecutors, uh, wrote that the DOJ is, is screwing the pooch on this. So you have people who are pretty in the know um, raising the alarms. And then on the other side, you do see uh, through various court filings, et cetera, et cetera, that the Department of Justice is actually moving up the chain to some degree. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a little mm-hmm. hard to parse and obviously they are going after the phony electors angle i think maybe that's one of the easiest things to prove Mm -hmm. um you you don't really need intent you don't really need to get too into the weeds with that did you submit uh fraudulent documents to a government agency and say this is real and they did right so like it's just a very straightforward you know we put these our signatures on these documents and we sent them in Right. They said, we are the duly elected um, electors um, mm-hmm. from this state, and they were not, right? They mm-hmm. were the losers. So that's a, a pretty a pretty clear one. I, I want to, mm-hmm. before I let you go, I want to s- switch tacks here a little bit and um, talk about something that you wrote this week, and this has been making me crazy. Like this whole Biden, is he running in 2024 conversation? Um, you have a piece, Biden in 2024, debating it is more evidence of regime change, which I'm going to ask you about in a second. But mm-hmm. I just want to say, before we even dig into this topic, how utterly meaningless a poll is mm-hmm. two and a half years before an election, um, asking whether you think somebody should run again or it, it, anything. It's just mm-hmm. there is zero predictive value in a poll this far out. Americans are not tuned into that election. Americans are not even tuned into the midterm elections. It is July for fuck's sake. I mean, I sometimes feel like I'm going crazy here because it's like, what if you walked out of your apartment on Memorial Day and then everybody put up their Christmas decorations? (laughs) You're just like, what the hell's going on, man? It's just, it's Memorial Day. We're we're not even, we're not even in Halloween. Like what, what are you doing? And um, a poll of what voters think about 2024, I'm telling you, you could spread out tea leaves, you could take chicken bones, whatever. It's all equally valid and equally predictive. There's no value to it. It's just punditry. And it's like they just have nothing to write about or something. I I don't even understand why we're even hearing about this. Anyway, but I think you do know why, um, because there's a narrative, you know, that um, everything's seen, being seen through the lens of the midterms and anything that doesn't fit into that is minimized. Everything that does fit into that is maximized, even if it's something completely ridiculous, like a poll about the next presidential election. I mean, yeah. that's, that's it. I mean, it's a very, it's a fairly unthinking way of doing journalism. Well, we've seen a lot of that this week, I, I think, it's fair to say. Um, there was a piece on uh, 538 um, this week, and it said, what's behind Joe Biden's, um, I don't remember the exact title, pathetic polling number, something like that. Mm-hmm. And I'm reading this piece, and it has all these different things. Yeah, well, you know, people are concerned about inflation. Well, 
Okay, yeah, people are concerned about inflation. People do tend to blame the party in power for declining, um, you know, purchasing power. That's clearly the case. But I'm reading this whole thing, and there's like no acknowledgement whatsoever of the hostile reporting that this administration has faced since the very beginning of their term. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, you know, I'm okay. I have a lefty podcast. Nobody has to believe me when I say, oh, it's been hostile really since the very beginning. The Washington Post published an actual analysis that showed that Biden got more negative coverage than Donald Trump did in his first year in office. No right? kidding. No kidding. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it was in a piece, an opinion piece by Dana Milbank. You can read it at the Washington Post. Um, and there's no acknowledgement of this. And meanwhile, you have the, the mainstream press is like harping on inflation in every reference to Joe Biden. There's no mm-hmm. there's no context in which they don't mention it. So then they turn around and say, oh, well, look, people are concerned about inflation. Well, of course, people are concerned about inflation because they're seeing it in their in their supermarket checkout lines, but they're also concerned about what the press tells them to be concerned about. (laughs) And the press is not telling them that they have to be concerned about democracy being taken over by a fascist coup. They're Mm -hmm. telling them they have to worry about um, inflation. And literally there was like a piece today on Joe Biden landing in Israel. And somehow, and this was in the New York times, they somehow managed to work in to this story, a, a, a neutral, an ostensibly neutral political report about Joe Biden landing in Israel saying, well, with inflation going crazy at home, he landed in Israel. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's it just a, like, um, I, I, again, I, I think this all reflects a kind of decoupling that we have between different political regimes. It's just the kind of there's no equilibrium right now. Everything's very unstable. Um, even the truth is upside down and backwards. It, it, there, it's all kind of, to me, it seems to suggest um, alignments that had been pretty solid for 40, 50 years uh, are becoming less solid and new alliances are starting to form, but they're tentative and everything's new. And I think this, this, there are our media coverage of this president and, and um, these polls and so on about things that don't even exist in most people. These, these are all, all this ridiculousness and, and irony is really indicative, I think, of just um, we're moving into a new political era, um, which sadly seems to be less liberal and less democratic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think that we're certainly seeing liberal democracy contested in a way that we've never seen before, but mm-hmm. perhaps that will re- result in a backlash against the backlash and ultimately its defense. That's what kind of keeps me going. By the way, mm-hmm. I, I responded to a survey this week. A political pollster called me up or actually sent me a text. And um, I was asked what my my top issue was. And they had like three variants of inflation. It was like gas prices, uh, in grocery inflation. It was like three separate categories, right? Rent being too high, whatever. And there was no, and it, this was like a list of 10 different issues. And some of those were things that are very important to me. There was abortion and 
democracy, but climate change wasn't on there. That wasn't an option I could choose mm-hmm. out of the 10. <laughs> They're just like, okay, we're just going to ignore the, the kind of uh, the elephant in the room. Yeah. I don't know. Our, our press corps is just broken. Well, you know, a lot, I, I think, um, I wish normal people would uh, understand that polls are really, I, I, this is part of my other piece about regime change is that polls, because there's so much instability in public opinion, um, polls about public opinion are going to be kind of crazy too. Um, it, so I think we should be really skeptical of when people say inflation is their top priority. I really don't believe people care about inflation. I think they care about prices. That I think they care about. Most normal people understand what price is. They have no idea what inflation is or care to know, but they know how much the, how much the price of milk is, you know, and then, and they, and they know about, about gas prices. That's probably the most um, accurate measure of people's economic viewpoints. But I mean, I mean, this is also, it's also just something this president has to, to deal with. I, I've actually, I've, I've been surprised, I've been delighted, to be honest, about Biden. He's not moving. He's just like, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> I know, you know, the polls are going to go all over the place. It's almost like he knows that they're just going to be volatile. And I'm just going to keep moving forward. And eventually people will catch up with me, especially Democrats. Um, yeah. You know, we're not in the, we're not in the, I don't think we live in an era now where Democrats will swing over to Republicans if they're not happy with things. No, no. I mean, things are super polarized. The question is who's motivated to get out and vote. And, um, you know, I, it's, it really is very interesting. I, I keep harping on the, uh, Republicans extremely narrow lead in the, uh, generic congressional polling. They're mm-hmm. the average in 538 generic congressional polling. Again, this is a poll that just says if the election were held today, would you vote for the Democrat or the Republican without naming anybody, without right. naming actual candidates? And um, Republicans are leading by less than two points and have mm-hmm. been pretty consistently. There's been some clear movement in the direction of Democrats since Roe was overturned. And um, it's it's really the disconnect between the the numbers the kind of as, as um, you know um, objective a measure as you can come up with and the narrative that you know Republicans are going to cruise into this massive red wave which I'm not denying the potential for but um, you know people are pretty pissed off on both sides there are more Democrats than Republicans in this country mm-hmm. so if you get everybody out to vote and everybody's angry and frightened, you know, it it um it could go either way. I'm, I'm thinking I'm thinking about um, how very few report everybody all the reporters are thinking about um, you know the history of whoever whoever's in the White House they get they lose the House or something like that. And, yeah. But you know, there's a possibility that nothing changes. Uh, that happened in 1982. And I bring up 1982 not just because it's an example of what, nothing happening, but because 1982 was also a year uh, that was the turnbuckle between political regimes. It was basically the the uh, the end of the beginning of of um, Reagan, Bush, Clinton that that era. 
and the end of the New Deal and Great Society era. So, you know, I, I, there, there, there's a part of me that's like, you know, we could just have nothing changing and that would be a very yeah. good thing. You know, I mean, the thing is that all punditry is based on this is what's happened in the past. So we expect it to happen again in the future. And the problem is that we are, you know, for years now, we've been in really uncharted territory. We've had, um, you know, we're we're less than two years after a coup attempt. We're just we're still in this grueling pandemic. Nothing is the way it used to be. So you can look back and say, oh, well, you know, the party that holds the White House has lost you know, an average of 40 seats in the house ever since blah, 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 whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and that elides the fact that, you know, we just had a Supreme court take away rights that people had taken for granted for 50 years. You know, we mm-hmm. still, we have a, a guy who basically drove a violent mob to go and um, riot at, at the Congress. He's going to be hitting the campaign trail again, you know, this mm-hmm. year. So, um, you know, there was a piece by John Sides, the political scientist in the Washington Post this week, and it said uh, well, Joe Biden's polling is exactly what we should expect it to be, his low polls. And he basically mm. referenced the historical patterns that we're talking about. And you know, there's been it's been called um, the thermostatic model of public opinion. Right. You elect mm. a Democrat and then people are all like, oh, we don't want to spend too much money. We should pull back and be more conservative you elect a conservative and they say oh we should you know we we don't want to pull back too much we should be a little more generous spend more money (laughs) and so you have this kind of counter weight to what's going on in politics with public opinion but again that assumes that the party in power is not motivated by sheer terror of the party out of power and i don't know that's the situation this year yeah i mean never in my lifetime have we been in a situation where a great many people, maybe perhaps a majority, understands that Republicans are dangerous? Never in my yeah. lifetime. I mean, I mean, and, never in anybody's lifetimes. This is all again un- uncharted territory, really mm-hmm. uncharted territory. Mm-hmm. John, I believe we are about out of time. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I really do appreciate it. We've gone over actually. I, I only asked you on for fifteen twenty minutes. We've gone. <laughs> It's my pleasure. Thanks. Thanks so much, folks. Read John. Check him out. He's writing every day over at the editorial board. Um, You can check it out at editorialboard.com, all one word. I'd also like to thank Anya Van Wagtendonk and David Edwards, our producer and engineer. I'd like to thank the good folks at Alternet and Ross Story for supporting the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Joshua Hall. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, I'd like to thank all of you fine people for tuning in. Have a terrific week.